You can grab your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 30. Psalm 30. So this is a psalm of thankfulness. And this is the last of the types of psalms that we're going to look at. And we're going to go back through those and, and kind of hit some more of the psalms from the different genres that we've looked at. Next week, specifically on Easter, we're going to look at another messianic psalm. I'm excited for that. I think by going through and cycling through the different kinds of psalms, it's going to give us a better grasp of what the the whole book in general is about. Even though we're not going to go through whole all 150 chapters of the book of Psalms, we're going to hit a lot of the major ones of the different genres. Um, and so this is a psalm of thanksgiving. But as we as we read through it, you're going to notice it's not only a psalm of thanksgiving. This psalm could easily slide into several of the different genres that we've already looked at. So I want to read it, and you can maybe identify some of those as we go. I'll be reading from the ESV, Psalm chapter 30. We'll read this together, and then I'll have a brief word of prayer. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you've healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Father, may our hearts resonate with the words of David here. Though we're thousands of years apart, Lord, we identify with this in so many different ways, on so many different levels. Lord, you've drawn us up out of the pit. Lord, where else will we go? for strength and comfort, but to you. And so may our hearts, may our lives, in fact, be changed because of your goodness that we find out and are revealed more of today through your word, by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I don't know if you caught it, but as we were reading through that, this could kind of fit into a few different categories. Praise is certainly present here. Um, Even there's some lament there's certainly wisdom implied. There's history. David is, is talking about some of the anger of the Lord, which we'll get into in just a minute. But this, this psalm is referencing a lot of different things. And in fact, if you look at the very beginning, I didn't read this part, but the title of it says, A Psalm of David, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple. So it's almost like it's saying a a psalm and a song, a psalm song. So this is one that's not just to be read, but this is one specifically that would have been sung in the temple as well. So the fact that it kind of repeats psalm song actually indicates that instruments 
are to be used there as well. Some of them say song, psalm, and it's almost like which one takes precedent, the voices or the instruments. This one in particular, it would be the voices. So what does it mean to be thankful? What does thanksgiving mean? Believe it or not, if you Google that, thanksgiving, the meaning of thanksgiving, uh, the top return says an expression of gratitude, especially to God. Okay, what does gratitude mean then? Gratitude means the quality of being thankful, readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness. So our first point this morning is that Thanksgiving is a response to a former kindness, right? So someone has been kind to you and you respond in this particular way, thankfulness. That's what it is. Let me tell you a story. This is not a true story, but let me just set the stage here. It's short. Uh, picture in your mind a father with his three kids, you know, teenage kids, at the beach. It's a wonderful day. It's in the evening time. The sun's kind of starting to go down, and they have a fire on the beach. And they're sitting around this fire, and they feel the salty air on their faces and on their skin. They feel the the heat and the coolness of the evening setting in. They're looking around at one another, and they begin to sing a song together. And a smile comes on their faces. Right? This is a a really pleasant story. I think most of us, as I've just told what, what we've told so far, we can picture ourselves there. Like we're there on the beach, reclining back, feeling the salty air, We can put ourselves in that story without a whole lot of trouble. But what if you knew the rest of the story? What if you knew the background to the story? Would more details matter? Would having more information and more background to that short story impact your view of it? I think it would. I think it should as well. So what if I told you that the father and his three kids had just lost his wife, their mom. Would that impact how we view this story? What if I told you that their mom, his wife, her favorite place was the beach? What if I told you that the song that they started singing was their mom's favorite song? So our understanding of a story at face value may be good, but when we know the background, when we know some history behind the scenes, we can understand it in a really a more full, more meaningful way by knowing the background. So we can pick up the Bible like we just did and read Psalm 30 and we can be encouraged. I think the Lord wants us to be encouraged when we pick up and read his verse, his, his word Most of us can identify with what David is saying in these verses. David had lots to be thankful for, but I think he's got a particular situation here in mind. And that's what I want to really jump into with you all and study together today. We're going to look at a few different passages from the Old Testament that I think he's got in mind here. And we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 24. So if you want to flip to 2 Samuel chapter 24... I encourage you to do that with me. Second 
Second Samuel 24. So a bit of background here. David and his mighty men had just fought some hard battles against some really intimidating enemies and had been victorious. They'd won those things. A part of this victory was against four giants, big dudes in Gath. These were likely Goliath and his brothers. And interestingly enough, Second Samuel chapter 21 verse 20 actually points out that one of those guys had an extra finger and toe on each hand. So 24 fingers and toes, big guy, intimidating. I don't know how that's intimidating, but it was a big deal apparently recorded in scripture. Uh, chapter 22 then is David's song of deliverance. This is a song that everybody sang. And then chapter 23 is David remembering, counting, naming the mighty men who fought. Chapter 24 begins differently than you might expect, differently than I would expect. It begins with a condemnation and talking about God's anger being kindled against Israel again. Let's just read that first verse. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Okay? So God's angry with David, and he incites him, he stirs him up to go number the people of Israel. All right. Why? Why is this important? Why is this a big deal? Well, flip over to First Chronicles, and I'd encourage you to keep your finger in Second Samuel 24. But First Chronicles is kind of a, a coordinating passage, a parallel passage. Chapter 21. First Chronicles chapter 21. Like the Gospels, we can read one and they have different information and it just completes the picture more. It's like looking at the story from a different angle. That's what we have going on here. The first verse of First Chronicles 21 says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Did everybody catch, catch that? So in Second Samuel, the story reads that God did this. In First Chronicles, the story reads that Satan did this. So what is going on here? And here's a question that we should ask probably at this point too. Is David taking a census, numbering, that's what he means by numbering the people. Is that a, like a wrong thing to do? Is he, is he sinning in taking a census? Well, well, not normally. It wouldn't be. So why would Satan stir David up to do this? Why would he try to cause trouble in Israel in this way by taking a census? That seems like a really strange thing to do. The, beside, the behind the scenes story here might actually surprise you. So David's commanding officer, you remember his name is Joab. And if you look in First Chronicles 21 verse 3, he has this conversation with David, which is pretty interesting. Look at that with me. But Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my Lord, the King, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be the cause of guilt for Israel? So Joab, who was no shining example of purity himself, um, he recognized there's, there's something going on here, David. Are you sure you want to go through with this? He was really warning him, but he wouldn't listen. David wouldn't listen. And so look at verse 6. 
David has already said, no, go do it anyway. So Joab goes out to obey the king. But he didn't do everything that David told him because at the end of verse 6 it says that the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. That's a pretty strong word, first of all. And it's awfully surprising that Joab would deliberately disobey the order of his friend, the king, in this thing. What's There's something else going on here. So let's dig in a little bit further. Last one that we'll go to is Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 30 verse 11. Here's where some of those pieces of the puzzle start to fall into place. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. So this is an instruction on how to do this properly, how to take a census the right way. So ransom in Exodus 30 is talking about satisfying a debt or paying the price of redemption. Everybody 24 years of age and older was supposed to give a half a shekel amount during the census as a tax, and it was to be given to the Lord. There's a purpose in this. Specifically, you can look at verse 16 of Exodus 30. Here's the purpose in this ransom tax, this census tax. You shall take the atonement money, that's what he's talking about, from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord as to make atonement for your lives. There's the purpose in it. That it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. So God instructed the people of Israel to give the census ransom as a way of remembering whose they were. A way of remembering who they belonged to. Was it Moses who delivered them out of Egypt? No. Was it Saul who kept them safe? No. Was it David who defeated their enemies? It wasn't. Who was it? It was God. It was the one true God who delivered them out of Egypt, who kept them safe, who defeated their enemies. And so this census ransom, this tax, was a way to remember, to cause them to remember that God was their boss, that God was their father, that he was in charge and he was leading them. This brought that back to their memories. So we fast forward to 1 Samuel 24. What was David's purpose in taking the census in Israel? Well, we're not told specifically what his purpose was, but it wasn't that. It wasn't to remember the Lord, was it? Because there's no mention of the law. There's no mention anywhere of the census or ransom tax. And there's no mention anywhere of remembering the Lord as king. Had David's motives been pure, the census census surely would have included those things. But guys, here's the thing. Satan tempted David the same way he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. The same way he tempts you and me even today by telling us the lie that we don't need God or just to forget about God. In fact, if you get right down to it, 
Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and he tempted David in our story here, and he tempts you and I today, not just that we don't need God, but that we are God. You're the most important. You're the greatest. Look at all the stuff you've got. Look at all the stuff you've done. You don't need God. And herein lies David's problem in 2 Samuel 24 and to what I think he's referring to in Psalm 30 in our text today. Now again, a census of the people, it's not a wrong thing to do, but David did it for a purpose other than remembering the Lord. And as we'll see, it had dire consequences for him and his people. So what happened next in the story, the background of Psalm 30? Look at 2 Samuel 24. Let's read verses 10 through 17. Actually, I'll just give a summary because we've got a lot to talk about. So after the census was complete, David recognized and he confessed his sin. He saw that he was wrong. And in an interesting story, God actually offers David three different punishments. David, you messed up. Here are your options. Mom and dad, have you ever done that for your kids? What do the kids usually choose if you give an option? They usually choose the easiest one, right? That one's going to impact me the least, so that's what I want to be punished with. I don't know if that's David's attitude here, but so God, God offers three different solutions, and they are three years of famine, 30 days of his enemies pursuing him hotly, or three days of pestilence or, or plague. We're not told exactly what that would be, um, but that was what was offered. And David chose that option, option three. And he said this, he said, let, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. He didn't want people pursuing him for three months. He didn't want a famine for three years. He wanted to rest in the hands of God. Well, the story goes that almost immediately, probably within the first 24 hours, 70,000 people died in this story, the nation of Israel and Judah. God, at that point, stays his hand. He pauses the pestilence. David, seeing all of this happen and the horrors of his people dying, rushes to do the only thing he knows how, and he rushes to do the right thing. He goes and he buys land, he buys animals, and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And God, in his mercy, stops the plague. He pulls his hand back and stops the pestilence. And so, in Psalm 30... David makes a comment, which we'll talk about in just a minute. He talks about the anger of the Lord only lasting for a moment. That's, I think, what's in his mind. 70,000 people gone just like that. The Lord in his anger at disobedience and sin. And the anger at leading the nation of Israel astray as David was doing by this wrong census. And just in a moment, God's anger burned and 70,000 people died. But in the same kind of a moment... God was kind to David and relented of this plague. You guys know the, the story of the background of the nation of Israel for the most part. Israel was a stubborn, the Bible calls them a stiff-necked people. They were rebellious people. God would have been justified in wiping them out here in Second Samuel 24. But his mercy was upon them. So if you 
still are in Exodus with one of your fingers, you can look back and look at verse 12, or maybe you can just remember, what was the consequence for an improper census? They were supposed to take a, a ransom tax and then give it to basically to the church, to the Lord as a part of worship so that they would remember God and so that something wouldn't happen. I'll read it to you, that there be no plague among them when you number them. That was the consequence for a wrong census. And look what happened. The plague was among them and upon them. So if flip back to 2 Samuel 24, if you're not already there. There's a couple of tricky parts here that I want to pay attention to. And if you've, if you were kind of reading, scanning through as I was talking in 1 Chronicles 21 or here 2 Samuel 24, you might notice that there seems to be an inconsistency with numbers. I'm not your numbers guy, but there is some sense to be made of these things. Why is the number of the men of valor, or I think ESV says the, the number of men who take up the sword fighting men, why is it different in Second Samuel 24 and different in First Chronicles 21? Well, the short answer is because of the difference with who was included in each report. So they were counting different people. Both Second Samuel and First Chronicles each failed to mention some of the standing armies that were in different places at the time. So there is a there's actually no discrepancy here. The, both calculations are correct according to the groups which were included and to the groups which were excluded. There's a, a small footnote at the end of the sermon notes today that explains this a little further if this is inter- interesting to you. But I didn't want that to go by without addressing seeming inconsistency here because there's not one. The second tricky part is kind of what I've already introduced to you, and it's this. Who incited David to take this census? Because one text said that God did it. The, another text said that Satan did it. And if you read both of them, at one point, David says he did it. So, so who did it? Who caused, who stirred up David to take this census? I think it was all three. To some degree, I think it was all three. Now, we need to keep a couple of things in mind here. So stay with me on this. Satan does nothing outside of God's command. He does nothing outside of God's control. And we see that in the story of Job as well. The second big thing we need to keep in mind here is that God oftentimes uses the arrogance and even the wickedness of men to discipline and humble his people. And you can just do a real quick cursory remembrance of the Old Testament and see that that's true. And you can probably think a little more current in our own culture and see that that's still true. God uses the arrogance of men to humble his people. Satan is the enemy of God. He is the enemy of God's people, and he is constantly deceiving people and tempting them to sin. He's frequently described in Scripture as doing only what God permits to be done. And so in this case, I believe that God permitted Satan to stir up David to take a census. But here's the big question behind that. Why would God do that? Why would God even allow that to happen? I think we look at the cross. See, in this story, it was Satan's design to use this wrong census to destroy David, to annihilate the people of God. But God had a different plan for it. God's design was to humble David 
and the people and to teach them a valuable spiritual lesson from this. And in his wisdom, God accomplished exactly what he willed. So remember the story of Job? At the very beginning, God doesn't go out and look for Satan. Satan comes to the throne and God says, have you considered Job? Both God and Satan were involved in his suffering. In in the same way, both God and Satan were involved in not just the temptation of David here to sin by taking the census, but they were both involved in the crucifixion, weren't they? Satan's purpose was different than God's, though, obviously. His, his purpose was to destroy the Son of God. But God's purpose was to redeem his people by the death of his Son. And in his wisdom, God accomplished exactly what he willed, exactly what he wanted. So even though it was Satan who directly stirred David up to do the census, ultimately it was God who permitted these things to happen for the ultimate good of his people, and for his glory. This is what's happening in Second Samuel 24, and I think this is what David is remembering in Psalm 30. So flip back to Psalm 30. That's most of all for the background of this. That, that will help us understand this story better. First verse, I will extol you. O Lord, for you've drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Extol isn't a word we use often anymore. It just means exalt, to highly praise. But when you connect it to the next phrase, it's clearly a celebration of deliverance from his enemies. The Lord could have sent David's enemies after him for 30 days, for 30 months, for 30 years. But he showed mercy, and David remembered it. Verse 2 and 3, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help. You've healed me. Oh, Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored my life, me to life, from those among who would go down to the pit. The word cried here is the same word that's used by Jonah when he's in the belly of the whale. The fish. Sorry. It's this cry of distress. But it's not, like we talked about a few weeks ago it's not just oh if you're you know if you're out there if there's any god in this place you know send me good vibes to get me out of this fish it was he was appealing to the one true god he'd messed up <laughs> jonah in the, in the belly of the fish david when tens of thousands of his people are dying they knew they'd messed up and they were crying out to god for help there's obvious distress in these stories, but man, there's earnestness in prayer too. And that's one thing as I was reading this week that really came to my mind. It's that even though this was a horrible thing in David's life, 70,000 people of his people died. Even though it was a horrible thing for Jonah to be tossed overboard and then swallowed by a huge fish, what did it drive them to? It drove them to depend on the Lord, to cry out to God. So anything that drives us to prayer, brothers and sisters, God can use for good purpose in our lives. Look at everything that David remembered in these couple of verses, two and three. He remembered that it was God who healed him. It was God who saved him. And it was God who restored him. These are all reasons why David is giving thanks and praising God 
in both word and song. He, he figured he couldn't sufficiently express the favor that God had poured out on him unless he compared it to the worst thing that he could imagine, being on the doorstep of death. Right? That's what we work so hard at, so many people, at avoiding the upcoming end of our lives. And so David was comparing the favor that God had poured out on him to the worst thing. And so that's why he talks about Sheol and the fear that he has. He was overwhelmed by it. But guess what? God was greater than his fears. Look at verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. An amazing mercy had been received and gratitude was called for. It was recognized and initiated by David, but he realized that he just couldn't do it justice alone. So he calls for all of the saints to join in. Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six. If one member suffers, all suffer together. But if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Brothers and sisters, I think Thanksgiving is absolutely an individual thing, but it's also a corporate thing. It's a corporate act. We have an opportunity corporately as a group this Friday to remember, to gather together and do this at our Good Friday service. So it starts at 630. I'd encourage you to join us and come with a heart of thankfulness for Christ's atoning work on the cross specifically. When you couple that, the cross with the resurrection, there's no other thing that is more merciful to sinners. And so thankfulness and praise are the appropriate responses to that kind of mercy that's received. I love the way that one commentator I read this week put it. Dwelling a while upon the mercies shown to us brings with it rejoicing in God with a singing disposition where we will think, where we will think that one mouth to praise God is too little. As we see here in David, who not only praised God himself, but also set all the saints to work with that same purpose. David is saying, guys, remember what God has done. Let's, let's sing to him. Let's worship him. We got to do this together. It's the same way today. And this is why God still commands that believers join together. Don't forsake it like some are doing, he says in Hebrews. Here's another point for your notes. When mercy is received, thankfulness is called for. When mercy is received, thankfulness is called for. Look at verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Here again, we benefit from knowing the background of this story. Second Samuel twenty four fifteen is generally translated, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. But I think probably a better reading should be until the time of meeting. So what does that change? Well, this refers to the evening sacrifice, with, which matches with the story where David saw what was going on, his people dying, and went to buy. He, he actually bought a threshing floor and oxen from a guy to make a sacrifice on. That would have been a normal thing for him to do at that time of meeting, that time in the evening for the evening sacrifices. 
So because he offered those sacrifices in the evening, God stopped the pestilence. So it's, it's very likely that it didn't even last a whole day because God had mercy. It's enough, he said. And he's, he told the, the angel to basically put away his sword. God's anger did last for a moment. Weeping may have lasted for the night, but joy came in the morning to realize it was over. If God, if 70,000 people were gone in less than a day, imagine what would have happened if all three, if it would have happened for all three days. And so David is saying, sorrow lasted for the night, but joy came with the morning to realize that God's mercy had come. So, having recognized and celebrated this great mercy that he and his people had received, David goes on in verse 6 to state the secure and prideful condition of his mind before the affliction came, before this all happened. He said, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Can you, knowing the background, can you, do you read that a little differently? You read that with more of an arrogant tone to it, a pride there. He said, I'll never be moved. It was true for David, and it's true for us today. Even just a little bit of earthly prosperity can cause us to forget God. Good health, comfortable bank account, man, these are blessings, but they can easily cause us to begin to rely on our own resources and strength and actually lead us something called practical atheism. This is where you say with your mouth that you need God, that you love God, but then you live your everyday life like he doesn't exist at all. And here we see really the motivation of David for taking the census. It was pride. He looked at his storehouses, he counted his warriors, and he came to the conclusion that he couldn't lose. I shall never be moved, he said. How wrong he was. How quickly pride comes before a fall. The pestilence was an awful rebuke, but the shortness of how long it lasted was a great mercy. Look at verse 7. David realizes he's mistaken and he acknowledges it. He says, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. So it wasn't his own wisdom. It wasn't his own military strength or the wealth that he'd gathered from conquering other nations. It was the Lord's favor that made his mountain stand strong. That's why he wasn't moved. David was full of fear when the pestilence came on him and his people. He felt like it was the Lord hiding his face from him. And now he realized who's really in control. Another commentator said, from David's perspective, I've learned by painful experience that the power of my kingdom had its root in thy favor. Look at verses 8 and 9. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. This is David recounting his fervent pleading to the Lord, his plea for mercy. I, I tend to think this was part of David's prayer 
when he bought the threshing floor and he was making offerings. It says in 2 Samuel 24, 24 that he called out to God. I think this was part of his prayer. He's saying, Lord, hear me and be merciful to me. Lord, be my helper. He said, if I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? What happens when a body dies? It returns to the dust. So he's saying, if I go down to the pit and I die, if I'm gone, will the dust, will my ashes praise you? Now, it might seem like David's afraid to die here, but I don't think that's what's going on at all. He really took all the blame and even offered to die if it would save his people. Let me read First Chronicles 21, verse 17. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Sheep meaning the people of Israel. Please let your hand, O Lord, my God, be against me and against my father's house. Do not let the plague be on your people. David recognized his blunder. He took the blame and he was ready to die if it would save his people. So I don't think this in Psalm 30 is him being afraid of death. I think it's just David calling on God to remember his promise to his people through his family line. His death also would give enemies reason to doubt the faithfulness and reality of God. At first glance, this might seem deceptive on David's part. But it's actually the best thing for him to do in this case. David knows, we've said it, it's obvious, he's blown it. He has no ground to stand on. He knows that. But God's promises, they never fail. And so we know that they never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So David appeals to the faithfulness of God to stand even when he has fallen. Even when he is weak, the word of God stands. And that's what David is calling on God to remember and to do. Look at the last two verses, 11 and 12 of Psalm 30. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I'll give thanks to you forever. Here now we begin to see words of triumph. And we've got a theme. There's mourning and sackcloth. There's dancing and gladness. And these throw our minds back to verse 5 where we can add to that list weeping and joy. Just pair these together. Weeping, mourning, sackcloth. What do these all have? What do they all kind of point to? They point to death. They point to a funeral. David expected and deserved death, and he knew it. But what did he get? What did the people receive? In the end, they received joy, gladness, even dancing. Now, I've been to my fair share of funerals, and I've never seen dancing at a funeral. Has anybody seen dancing at a funeral? That's not the occasion generally to dance because with dancing, dancing comes out of joy. And so we've got these two things contrasted. And David is saying, I expected this. This is what I deserved. And this is what I received. And he was thankful. God has revived David 
from his deserved end. And David responds with joy, dancing. In fact, it says that he refused to stay quiet about it. I will give thanks to you forever. I will sing your praise and not be silent. Brothers and sisters, when God's people, when we stand back and we see his undeserved mercy, thanks and praise burst out. They do. And we sing, uh, count your blessings, count your many blessings, see what God has done. When we step back and we look at things from that objective perspective, we only have things to be thankful for. When we remember the whole story of what God has brought us through, gratitude rises up in us. Thanksgiving is a response to a former kindness. And when this is our perspective, we want everybody around us to do the same thing too. Right? Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a collective, corporate, congregational kind of thing that we can do together. We offer thanks. And we've done that. We just got done singing, Jesus, thank you. We've sung it together. Brothers and sisters, God deals with his people justly, perfectly justly. And there will be times of needed discipline where our arrogance causes God to teach us humility. But we can be assured if we are in Christ that his love endures forever. It extends through all generations. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I can't help but think with that in mind of the dark day that Jesus was crucified. Both figuratively and literally a dark day when he was crucified. And that's the night. Sorrow comes in the night with the night. But the day of his resurrection, three days later, joy came with the morning. What a, what a potent reminder of both my great sinfulness that would necessitate the Son of God's death on a cross, but also a reminder of God's great love for sinners. You, we, every person created in the image of God is invited to participate in that kind of love. But we have to give up our life of selfishness and pride and put our faith and trust and hope in Jesus alone not in our own goodness, not in what we might be able to achieve or do for God on our own. God has not made you to be miserable and fearful. He's made you to be exceedingly full of joy. Real joy only comes, though, when, just like the morning, the light of Christ shines in our hearts. So my encouragement and challenge would be today, put your faith in Him and be saved. And I'm Happy to talk with you more about that. As we sing our last song of reflection and praise, thankfulness, I'll be standing up here. Feel free to come and grab me and pray. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk to the Lord one more time. God, you are faithful. And when we take a step back and when we remember all the things that you've brought us through in a similar way to what David was doing in Psalm 30, Lord, we see the failures. We know we've blown it. We don't need a whole lot of convincing 
to remember those things, Lord. But what we might need convincing of is a reminder of your faithfulness and your mercy. And when mercy, when mercy is received, thankfulness springs out. Make us thankful people. Lord, not entitled, not arrogant, but thankful, grateful people. Undeservedly, but thankful. Do that work in us, Lord, as our natural inclination is going to be toward arrogance and pride. Lord, break us of that. Break my heart of pride that I might only boast in your work and none of my own. In Christ's name I pray, amen.